This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Twenty years before the January 6th attack on the Capitol, a Republican mob attacked a central hub of government operations, claiming the vote count in the presidential election that year was fraudulent and trying to reverse the results. And that was a Republican effort long before Donald Trump. For that history, we turn to Chris Lehman. He's DC bureau chief for the nation. He's also the former editor of The Baffler and The New Republic. He's been DC correspondent for The New York Observer, and he's held positions at New York Magazine, Washington Post Book World, and Newsday. He's the author most recently of the book, The Money Cult, Capitalism, Christianity, and the Unmaking of the American Dream. Chris Lehman, welcome back. Thanks, John. Happy to be here as always. Well, what was the event 20 years ago that looked something like January 6th? Yeah, it was the protracted aftermath of the deadlocked 2000 presidential vote where Florida was not yet declared officially for either George W. Bush or Al Gore. There were all of these crazy irregularities in the Florida balloting. There was the notorious butterfly ballot that turned, you know, one district that was heavily Democratic into a, uh, I think, a majority for Pat Buchanan. You know, it was running as a third party right winger. Things were crazy. <laughs> and uh, both political campaigns for Bush and Gore sent legal teams down to Florida, sent, you know, official spokesmen. And as is often the case, uh, the conservative side had a more bellicose approach to tactics. And nice, nice way of putting it. <laughs> and unleashed a group of uh, young political operatives to disrupt what was that, what had happened was the balloting in Miami-Dade County had been moved from its official site to a another government building for the sake of what they dearly hoped was sort of peace and quiet. And it turned out that this itself was an inflammatory thing. And uh, the right started to raise suspicions about chicanery behind the scenes. And uh, so they basically got a mob, um, I think of around a hundred political operatives to go up to the floor in this building where the votes were being reviewed and you know, create an uproar and disrupt the proceedings. Um, and, and and what was their ostensible rationale for challenging rationale, the vote? You know, well, the official rationale was the same thing you heard from the right wing mobs outside of the Michigan voting centers or the Georgia voting centers in 2020 that they wanted to exert citizen scrutiny over you know a corrupt balloting process and make sure that every vote was counted in. You know, it is important to kind of underline in contrasting these two events that in 2000, there there were legitimate concerns about the propriety of ballot counting. And, you know, it was a, a hard fought race. There were the outcome was much more in doubt in short than it was in 2020. And I think that did help to fuel everyone understood that the stakes of this particular vote count in this place and time was the American presidency. So yeah, there was basically uh, and, a tie in the right. electoral votes that had been reported, Florida being a very big state with a strong Democratic base in Miami-Dade County was right. going to be the decisive 
event in determining the election, as you say. And so the Republicans organized. You called it a mob. What did they call? How how was it called by in Republican well, circles? Well, the, the uh, you know the sort of puckish pet name um, that Republicans themselves adopted for it was the Brooks Brothers Riot, which is interesting sort of iconography on the face of yes, it. Yes, yes. Because you know the the juxtaposition there is you know people wearing Brooks Brothers suits don't tend to riot at the <laughs> in our popular imagination. Though when it comes to suppressing the vote, um, people who do riot and actually prevent uh, people from having their votes counted do tend to be white dudes of a Brooks Brothers social background, let's just say. So they claimed they wanted to to oversee, watch, observe Mm -hmm. the vote count to make sure every vote was being counted. What was the actual strategy behind this disruptive attack? You know, I interviewed um, a couple of participants uh, for the piece I wrote for The Nation, and it was a two-pronged strategy. One, you know, there was a big legal team on the ground that James Baker, the former Secretary of State under the first George Bush, uh, was orchestrating. And then there was a, a sort of, for lack of a better term, a street contingent uh, that Roger Stone was orchestrating. Oh, no, um, Roger Stone. That's a familiar name. Yeah, it does ring a bell, doesn't it? <laughs> he, um, of course, also claimed a prominent role in pulling together the January 6th mob um, and coordinated infamously with the Oath Keepers who were part of a security detail on that day and the Proud Boys. The thing to be careful about with Roger Stone is he is a megalomaniac and he takes credit for a lot of things. So he retrospectively claims that the Brooks Brothers riot and basically the, the Brooks Brothers riot created enough attention and adverse publicity for the Gore-Lieberman team in his view that it helped swing the presidency toward George W. Bush when Catherine Harris stupidly declared that uh, the recount, basically what they were trying to do was to cease the recount because they understood that's the paradox, right, is an actual uninterrupted and sober recount in Miami-Dade probably would have gone into the Gore column. So, you know, the the real strategy was to disrupt, delay, get to the point where Catherine Harris would announce that the recount would be suspended, kick it over to the courts, which this is all what happened. And ultimately, after su- rapid successive court challenges, the, the case went to the Supreme Court, which infamously decided in, in Bush v. Gore, on this one occasion only that the 14th Amendment <laughs> guaranteed someone the right to be elected president. And and then we had the Bush presidency. There's um, one big question at the very beginning of this. Yes. Why did the ballot counters in Miami-Dade County stop counting the ballots when these Brooks Brothers so-called mob I, I, was started pounding on their front door. Well, I think they were just sort of blindsided. I don't think, you know, anyone expected. I mean, you kind of saw the same dynamics again in Michigan and Georgia in 2020. You know, these are people who are focusing on a very important and tedious task in a very high stakes environment. And, um, you know, just to, to be besieged like this was discombobulating. And and eventually, I think, you know, they started to resume. And then one of the um, officials who's now a Florida state Democratic representative, but was then an election official in Miami-Dade, he was actually, it says he was hounded out of the building and 
was threatened verbally by the the rioters after he left and he got home and turned on the TV and saw on the news that lo and behold, uh, they had stopped the recount in Miami-Dade. Again, it worked. (laughs) And was this an event where, you know, a violent mob is pounding on the door, demanding to be let in and they fight the police for hours and... No, it wasn't. It wasn't that. Brooks Brothers rioters today, you know, claim that there was no violence. There was no threat of violence. It was just chanting. It was, you know, creating a lot of noise and disruption. And again, this other election official testified otherwise. It's a tricky thing because a lot of these, you know, people were taking part in the riot were young Republican political operatives who then went on to have they were rewarded with careers in the Republican establishment. So they very much want the narrative to be that it was not violent, that it was not improper. It does seem like the election authorities did not call the police. They yeah, just no, got scared and left. Yeah, or yeah, or just figure it out that we're making trouble by doing this. We better stop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. As near yeah. as I can tell, there were sheriffs out, out in front of the building, but they were never called in. In my introduction, I said this was long before Donald Trump on January 6th. Did Donald Trump have anything to do with this? No, though, what's in this is not to wax conspiratorial or anything, but over on, I mentioned before, James Baker captained the legal team. And on his legal team, three of the voting attorneys who were aggressively, you know, drafting legal documents to challenge the vote uh, were future Supreme Court justices, two of whom were appointed by Donald Trump, Neil Gorsuch and um, Laura Coney Barrett. Uh, The third one was Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice John Roberts. Um, Let me just pause here for a moment and contemplate this fact. Three people who today sit on the Supreme Court were lawyers for the George W. Bush campaign trying to stop the vote in Florida in 2000. That is a remarkable fact. It certainly is. And among other things, you know, just recently, John Roberts gave a speech again, soberly, you know, warning against the dangers of the Supreme Court being dragged into politics. And I mean, here, (laughs) here is a big chunk of the conservative majority of the present court, very much in politics. And John Roberts himself started out in the Reagan administration as an attorney devoted to basically suppressing voting rights. Um, So it's a very (laughs) legible through line that, you know, what's frustrating is, you know, an event like January 6th happens and it seems like this outlying story, this freakish occurrence, and there is a long history uh, here of mobilizing, you know, powerful, influential legal minds, strategists, and professional political consultants, all on the same page with the same end. And it did produce a very decisive moment in our political history that, you know, was forcefully swung um, to the right. One other small historical footnote, Roger Stone has a tattoo. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) he certainly does. It is a uh, head of Richard Nixon, sort of in between his shoulders on his back. And Uh, is this like a one inch tattoo? It's it's funny. I I went back in my I had (laughs) misremembered it as a much more. It's it's just a head. So it's it's significant. I would say it's about 
I don't know. I haven't seen it in person. Uh, <laughs> I would say four inch tattoo. And it That's is, um, you know, homage, you know, he had it made when Richard Nixon was a, a sort of excoriated fi figure, even in the Republican Party after Watergate and his resignation and Roger Stone having the street fighter kind of sensibility, you know, embraced it. And uh, I think that's a big part of why Roger Stone and Donald Trump get along so well. I just want to now get specific about the similarities and the differences from yeah. January 6th. The most striking thing is the similarity of the goal. Stop the vote count in a way that would throw the event, the election into the courts where Republican judges could be counted on to make the Republican candidate the president. That was the strategy in 2000, kicked off by the Brooks Brothers riot. And in two, 2020, you had exactly the same strategy. You, you know, we've seen in the January 6th hearings that Sidney Powell and these other, you know, legal advisors to Trump's sort of scorched earth effort to overturn the 2020 election results were, you know, just pleading with, you know, their allies in Congress during the certification of the presidential vote to just draw draw it out a little longer so that um, the, the mob besieging the Capitol could create enough havoc that you would have to stop the vote count or you would, the certification rather. And uh, then you would kick it over to the congressional delegations from all the states where they felt they, they could make the Republican advantage result in a Trump victory. Um, or else, or else there would be constitutional chaos because no. Congress had not met its not constitutional responsibility and the court would be called on to decide what to do about this. Right. And um, we would get 2000 all over again. Yeah, I, I do think that was a big part of the strategy, though. I do, again, based on the January 6th hearings, their first approach was to try to move through the congressional delegations. But the idea that chaos around the vote count could lead to new paths to a Republican victory that hadn't been tried before, they tried in uh, at the Brooks Brothers riot. And as you say, they won. Of course, the biggest difference is it didn't work on January 6th. Right. Uh, it didn't right. work in two ways. First of all, the police showed up and fought for right. two hours and 28 minutes until Trump called off the mob and Congress and the particular the Senate and in particular Vice President Pence were determined to return as soon as the building was secured and quote finish their job. Those are two really big differences. Yeah, agreed, though, um, you know, I think it is important to note that the Capitol Police were badly outnumbered and Trump made a point of um, not calling in the National Guard and not calling in the army. Yes. And had also, you know, um, appointed, you know, cronyist people to head the military right prior to January 6th. So it's one other big difference. The Brooks Brothers aspect of the 2000 riot. It's, <laughs> it's a phony idea that these are bankers and, and uh, uh, stockbrokers. But these were not people wearing tactical combat gear, right. bearing weapons, and organized in combat style units right, at the right. front. They were not paramilitaries. They basically. were not paramilitaries. Um, 
So that's a big change in Over Republican time. strategy. Yeah, and and also yeah, the the entire sort of makeup of the Republican base over that time, you know, back in 2000, um the the sort of hardcore of the party was well-off white business people um and in 2020 you see a very different transformation of the GOP base including QAnon figures and Q, including you know all of these sort of extremist I mentioned earlier, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, um, you know, overtly racist and white nationalists and fascist. I, I, I think and organized as militias. Yes, exactly. Made, you know, that the thing about January 6th is, yes, it did ultimately fail, but it, you know, we've seen in, in uh, the January 6th hearings how terrifyingly close it came to actually succeeding. You know, they're not letting up. There's actually just a uh, recent survey by the website 538 has found that 60% of Americans in the 2022 election cycle will have election deniers on their ballots. And that has serious repercussions looking ahead. Uh, some of these people are candidates to be secretaries of states in swing states come 2024. They could easily, especially if the Supreme Court issues a a bad ruling in the upcoming independent legislature um, case, they could easily swing an election um, for the Republican candidate in 2024. Chris Lehman, he's the nation's DC bureau chief. He wrote about the Brooks Brothers riot and the ways it set the stage for the January 6th insurrection at thenation.com. Thank you, Chris. This was great. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.